Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best lean not on our own understanding in all our ways acknowledge him and expect that he will direct our paths so grab your bible prepare your hearts and minds hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the holy spirit and then join me as we open up the treasures of god's word In this episode, we will be celebrating the communion, otherwise known as the table of the Lord, or even sometimes the Eucharist. But before we get started, let me say a few things. In this ministry, we do things a bit differently than you may be used to. In most Christian churches around the world, there's a lot of tradition that goes along with this celebration. And let me say, by the way, that includes those independent evangelical churches who like to proudly claim to be tradition-free. We, in this ministry, like to keep it simple. We follow our Lord's instructions, and we handle ourselves in a scriptural manner while we celebrate. Now, let me explain, and this is all you'll need to know to celebrate with us. Let me begin with some scripture, always my favorite place to start. Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, here in Matthew 26, we find the authorization, if you will, for the bread and the cup, collectively known as the elements. So when you celebrate the communion, you are to have a set of the elements for everyone participating with you. That is, you'll have some bread, and a cup with something to drink. Those are the elements. Now, although we are not going to get too hung up on the details of the elements, here are some guidelines. First, the bread. Now, forget tradition. I know some of you are used to the little round wafers that are given out in some churches. Now, I'm not a big fan of that, but I don't want to get into why I'm not a big fan of that, into what I'm calling this mini lesson. Plain old bread is fine. That's what scriptures say Jesus used, so there's no reason to be too elaborate. However, having said that, let me say that when we in this ministry partake, we use unleavened bread. You maybe know unleavened bread as matzah or matzo or matzo crackers. The reason why we use matzo crackers or unleavened bread is because we can be certain that's what Jesus ate that night. The story of what we today call the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper 
took place during the celebration of Passover and all devout Jews, and trust me, there was no Jew more devout than Jesus. All devout Jews ate only unleavened bread during the celebration of Passover. Jesus and his disciples, you can be sure, only had unleavened bread on their table that night. So we use unleavened bread when we partake in the communion. Now you may ask, is it a sin to eat leavened bread during the communion? Bread that has yeast in it. Is that a sin while celebrating the communion? Well, in my opinion, no. And the, the, the devil and the church, they want us to worry about that. They want us to overly worry about that, but let's not. Remember, the whole point of the communion is to remember him, not just some silly list of ingredients. Let's just make a decision on the type of bread and then go with it because it's just bread. Again, tradition may want to tell you something different, but it is just bread. The important part in all of this is what the bread represents. And Jesus told us what that is. Quote, I'm reading from scripture again. Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. So that's the bread. It's a symbol of his body, the body he gave up for us. So what's next? Matthew 26, 27, and he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, here is where there's been a sustained battle for centuries. Again, our aim in this lesson is not to argue, fuss, and fight. So, let's just keep this simple by, again, telling you what we believe and the manner in which we partake. First of all, at our communion celebrations, there are two elements. Now, some church tradition doesn't stress the two-element thing. Some church tradition says that all you need is the bread, but that's not what Jesus said. And so, we have both elements, the bread, which we've already discussed, and the cup. Now, what about the cup? What should be in it? Well, as we just said, Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his friends when all of this took place. So we can be relatively certain that the cup he chose to share was one of the ritual cups of the Seder, which is the traditional, highly ritualized Passover meal. We've covered the Seder in previous lessons. And if you remember that lesson, you'll know that there are ceremonial cups of wine. So most likely there was a cup of wine, and I use that term loosely, there was a cup of wine at the table, and that was the cup that Jesus used. That's why most of the time when you do receive the cup at communion, there's wine in it. However, it's 
not unusual to be in a church that simply uses grape juice and even sometimes water. Now, let me state my position on this. It's exactly how I feel about the bread. I don't believe it matters what's in the cup, so don't let the contents of the cup distract you. You are celebrating a memorial with symbols. That's what the elements are. They're symbols. Now, down through the centuries, again, I will say this has been hotly debated, and we're not going to reopen that debate here. In this ministry, we use, listen to me, plain old fruit juice, either grape or cherry. Now, don't let that fact cause you to judge my stance on the use of alcohol. My feelings about alcohol have nothing to do with our choice of this communion element. This is why we use non-alcoholic fruit juice. This is listen to this. In order to produce alcohol, some of you know you will most likely use a type of yeast. Now, this is, of course, an oversimplification. Please don't email me and write me letters trying to straighten me out about the fermenting process. Most commonly, fermentation of alcoholic beverages involves the introduction of yeast. Now, yeast is leaven, and since there is to be no leaven whatsoever in the homes of devout Jews during the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, by the way, which follows the Feast of Passover, because there was no leaven in the homes at that time, during that celebration, we believe that Jesus probably didn't hand out alcoholic wine. Alcoholic wine is technically leavened grape juice. Now, can I state that categorically? Can I categorically say that Jesus did not hand out wine? No, it doesn't say. And what do I say every time the Bible doesn't say something about something? It's not important. But I will say, as I did before, I don't think you're sinning if you do things differently or think things differently than we do when it comes to the contents of the elements. Once again, I say you decide what you use and then put, listen to me, put the whole matter out of your mind. Which leads us to the last very important issue we'll discuss with regard to the communion. This time, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, ye proclaim the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man prove himself. The King James says, let a man examine himself. This is the revised version. Let a man examine himself. So let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he that eateth and drinketh, eateth and drinketh judgment unto himself, if he discern not the body. Now for many centuries, there has been fear 
around this table, and then eventually fear gave way to apathy. First we feared the table of the Lord, then we didn't care. That's where we are now, where people don't care, and neither of those two states is acceptable. Let's cover the fear. Now, to be honest, I get it. I understand the element of fear. The above passage that I just read is rather ominous. It speaks of being guilty of something. It speaks of judgment. There are, these are things that you and I and every clear-thinking Christian shrinks from. We don't want to be guilty. We don't want judgment. We want to do things right. And then throw in the very next verse, For this cause many among you are weak and sickly, and not a few sleep, meaning die. Throw that verse in, and then you have a full-scale panic every time the pastor says, Time for communion. No! Do we really think that's what Jesus intended when he left this for us, for us to be fearful when we come to the table? Now, we can, and we have spent entire lessons on this, but let me set your mind somewhat at ease. Paul is saying that if we drink, eat and drink unworthily, now that word is an adverb, unworthily, that's why I keep saying it like that, unworthily is an adverb. Adverbs describe actions, not actors. This is not unworthy, this is unworthily. Adverbs describe an action. Paul says, if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, then you're risking those things that he mentioned. The judgment. Being guilty. If you partake in an unworthy manner. Now, I don't want to go into too much depth here about what those things are that he says you're risking, because the point of this lesson is to go over how to make Jesus happy when you celebrate the communion. In this lesson, we're not focusing on anything other than what God expects out of us. Because frankly, if we do what he asks, well, then it won't matter what happens to us when we do otherwise, right? God says to eat and drink in a worthy manner, so let's just do that. Well... What does that mean? Fortunately, Paul tells us, and he tells us in plain, easy language. Paul says that the unworthy manner is eating and drinking, not discerning the Lord's body. The unworthy manner is when you don't discern the Lord's body. A worthy manner, therefore, is discerning the Lord's body, right? Does that make sense? Now, you, maybe you're saying, well, what does discern mean? What does that mean? Well, let's look at Webster's. Now, this is important. This is important to get to the basics, not only to avoid those negative ramifications of not eating and drinking worthily, but also because this sweet little celebration was given to us by someone we love, right? He told us to do this, and we love him. If you're 
dear granny asked you to take your shoes off in the house, you'd do it because you're because she's your sweet granny and you love her and you want to please her. You don't ignore granny, at least I hope you don't. You don't sit there and, well, should I take my shoes off or shouldn't I? I mean, how important is this? Is granny going to smack me in the back of the head? Is that really what you think about? Granny asked me. I love her. I'll do what she says. Why would this be any different? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. You're going to find out in a moment that remembrance and discerning are the same thing. Now, according to Webster, to discern means to come to know or recognize mentally. It's that simple. That's the definition of the English word discern. It also sounds, well, pretty close to the word remembrance, don't you think? Real quick, Webster says, remembrance means the state of bearing in mind. Same thing as recognizing something mentally. They mean the same thing. Jesus wants you to remember him, to discern him, discern what he did for you when you go to the table. Now, one more time, forget for a moment what happens to you if you don't and just concentrate on how this is simply a request from someone we love. Jesus wants you to remember him. Listen, if we concentrated more on this, whatever this is as a relationship, this church thing, this Christianity, if we concentrated more on this being a relationship between two people, a lot of the silliness goes away. We cloud it with tradition. We, we make it foggy with all the silly things that we do and think and say. It's a relationship. You can get to the true meaning and intention of things if you just realize this is a relationship. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Okay, I love you. That's what I'm going to do. Yes, there are things that can happen to me if I don't do that. Forget about that. Jesus said to do it. I'm going to do it that way. I'm going to remember him. He wants us to think about him. Now, whenever I take communion in a church, which is not very often, church is not a good place to concentrate on the things of God, and I'm sorry if that sounds harsh, but it's true. Church is not a good place to go if you want to concentrate on the things of God. Now, most churches, there are some churches, sure. Most churches, no. Tell me, honestly, does it look like anyone is concentrating on Jesus at communion in church? Again, maybe some, but not very often, unfortunately. And that's partly why we celebrate communion with you through this ministry, either over the radio or through our web stream or now through these podcasts. We want you to have some control over your discerning environment. So when you partake, and the lesson again, I want to tell you, the lesson that follows this little intro, yeah, some, some little intro, the lesson that follows this intro 
is one in which we go to the table of the Lord. And I'm suggesting to you that if you want to partake, once we get to the communion in this lesson, I'm going to tell you it's not, it doesn't happen right away. It happens sometime during the lesson. This was previously recorded a couple of years ago. Sometime in that lesson, we go to the table of the Lord. And if you want to partake, then I suggest that you find somewhere quiet and without distraction so that you can commit your full attention to discerning and remembering. So let's wrap this up. It's already gone far longer than I had intended it to do. The lesson that follows contains a communion celebration, and if you want to join us, and you don't have to. You can just listen to the lesson. You can listen to the communion and how we do things. You do not have to partake if you listen. Just listen. But if you do decide to partake, here are some things to keep in mind. Number one, this is a wrap-up. This is a summary. Number one, have a set of the elements, that's the bread and the wine, for each person who will be participating with you. The bread will symbolize the body, and the cup will symbolize the blood. You, and what's in the cup? It can be wine, it can be juice or water. The one that will be in front of me will have juice. Number two, make sure you are in a place where you do not have any distractions, at least for the few minutes that we will be sharing together at the table of the Lord. Turn off your phone, put the little ones to bed, put the dogs upstairs, draw the curtains if you have to, just find a quiet, peaceful place so you can remember him. You got all that? The table of the Lord is one of the most lovely experiences we can have as members of his church. We will be getting into a communion message in just a few moments. The table of the Lord is a lovely celebration. If we do it right, without fear and without distraction, it can be something you look forward to time and again. Just make sure you show Jesus the respect he deserves and partake of the communion as he commanded, as he said, do this in remembrance of me. You may not believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, but I do. Jesus once said, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Now, I want to take the briefest look at the Greek word that gets translated into the English word truth. It is aletheia. Aletheia starts with a prefix that's formed by a single Greek letter alpha, which corresponds to our letter A. This single letter prefix is quite common in the Greek language, and it does something very special to the meaning of the word. It is called a privative, and linguists tell us that it has the effect of negating or inverting the value of the word it precedes. Now, the example we like to use to illustrate this is gnosis. Gnosis in the Greek means knowledge or knowing. It's where we get our word knowledge from. 
Now put the alpha privative in front of it and it becomes anosia, not knowing or spoken more plainly, ignorance. Anosia, ignorance. It's where we get our word agnostic, not somebody who doesn't believe. That's an atheist, an atheist, but rather someone who doesn't know, agnostic. Once again, coming from the Greek word anosia. Now, we actually use privatives in English as well. There is un, un. Belief becomes unbelief. Belief is inverted. The value is changed. Belief becomes unbelief. Heard becomes unheard, etc. We also have in, in, found in words like incapable or incoherent. And then as we inferred just a second ago, we also use the letter A. We do use the letter A as a privative in our own language, largely because of transliterating Greek and Latin words, such as agnostic, as we mentioned before, as well as others such as apolitical or atypical, meaning not having a political affiliation or not being typical. So we use privatives as well. In Greek and sometimes in English, the alpha privative has the effect of turning the meaning of a word completely around. Now, I, I know you're clever, so you may be thinking, well, how does that apply to this word aletheia, the word found in John 16, 13? It isn't translating a negated word. It is translating the word truth. Well, at least in my opinion, this just so happens to be one of the most interesting words you'll ever see in the Greek New Testament. Aletheia contains the alpha privative followed by a form of the verb lanthano. Lanthano, listen to me, means to lie hid or to conceal. Lanthano means to lie hid or to conceal. Now listen to this. Therefore, the literal translation of aletheia is un or non-hidden, un or non-concealed. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, one of them anyways. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, of aletheia, the spirit of non-concealment. The Holy Spirit reveals truth. He opens up truth. He rescues truth, if you will. He unhides that which exists as truth. Throughout mankind's existence, men have always fought for control of other men. Well, what's the best way to do that? Control information. Dictators censor the press. Despots outlaw free speech. Tyrants close universities. You history buffs know that whenever an invading army arrives, 
among the first things captured are the radio and television stations and newspaper outlets. Every time one nation invades another, the first thing they do is capture all of the media outlets. If you want a strong grip on the populace, then keep them anosia. Remember what that means? Ignorant. Keep the people ignorant of the facts. Don't let them think. Keep the truth hidden. In the repressive regimes around the world, do they not strictly limit the use of those rapid information channels, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc.? Those things aren't allowed. The internet is strictly controlled in places that have repressive regimes. Keep the people stupid and they're easier to manipulate. But don't let me deceive you. Information control is not limited to nefarious dictators and oppressive governments. Now this may seem hard to believe, but down through the ages, men have attempted the same thing with the knowledge of God. Evil men, through no doubt the indirect and even direct influence of Satan, evil men have sought to and succeeded in controlling, hiding, and concealing God's truth. In fact, if you ask me, and I know you didn't, but it's my show, there's been more hiding God's truth than revealing, by far down through the centuries. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm just referring to some sort of heathen warlords or communist politicians. Just as often, the concealment efforts happen under the mask of religion, religious authority. Did you know that there was a time in church history, church history, when it was not permitted for the common man or woman to have a copy of the Bible in their native language. You see, and, and it's this way even today. Some in the church see knowledge of Scripture as a threat, as a threat to the authority of the church. The authority of Scripture is feared because it could repent Listen to me, it could replace the church as the guide to truth. The, the church has always said, hey, leave it to us. We'll tell you what you need to know. Imagine that. The church seeking to stop knowledge flow. It's well known. The church sought to stop those who tried to translate the Bible into the common tongue because they knew that if the people became familiar with their scripture, the role of the clergy would change. The whole position of the church would then be threatened. 
Now, today we're going to the table of the Lord, and perhaps this is where this information control is its most evil and ugliest. You see, the church doesn't want—I don't want to sound like some sort of agitator. I just want you to— see things as they are. The church was established to serve the people. The church, I should say the church hierarchy, because you're the church. You are. When you read in the early church, the establishment of elders and deacons, etc., that was done to make it better for you, not to make them more powerful. Nowhere in the primitive church And we have a record of the primitive church. It's called the New Testament. Nowhere was anyone fighting for primacy or supremacy. Nobody was trying to get richer and more powerful. They were just trying to devise ways to make the church more useful to God. So I want us to get back to that. So when I refer to the church, I'm not an anarchist. I want us to get back to what God had intended us to be. His instrument on earth for revealing Christ. You see, the church doesn't want you to know Their version of communion is nowhere to be found in the Bible. They don't want you picking up the Bible and figuring that out. Jesus said nothing about the bread becoming his body. Jesus said nothing about the cup containing his actual blood. When William Tyndall made it clear that he was going to translate the Bible so that anyone could understand it, the English elite from the bishops all the way up to the king lost their minds. They vowed that this would never happen. They made it their personal mission to prevent any English version of the Bible because they didn't want God's truth unhidden. They didn't want God's truth non-concealed. You see, up to William Tyndall's day, you had to be an expert in Latin, a decidedly foreign language, to even read it. You couldn't get any further in Europe from Italy, where Latin language existed, from Rome, to England. You couldn't get any further in Europe, geographically and culturally. William Tyndall and others, Miles Coverdale and the others, they saw that as a a tragedy. Well, the church and the king didn't want you reading the Bible, the king at first. Eventually, the king, King Henry VIII, we're talking about, gave in, not because he wanted his people more 
aware of, well, let's not get into it. I don't want, the, the today is communion. But the church and the king at the time did not want you to be able to read your Bible because doing so would give up their control of information. Giving up control of information meant a loss of power. Demystifying the communion would remove the fear from it and then leave only the love. If the communion was understood by the common man, for instance, if he knew 1 Corinthians 11, then he would be exposed to the beauty and simplicity of what really happened that night in the upper room. The common man and woman would be able to see that all Jesus asked was this do in remembrance of me. No mention of pump, no mention of circumstance, no robes, no bells, no incense, and perhaps most obvious, no priest, no officiate of any sort. After putting down their English language Bible, the first thing that peasant may ask is, why do I need a priest to babble over the elements? I don't see that in the Bible. It had to be stopped. Men in power don't want to give that power up. You see, when you control the belief system of the masses, you can dictate their obedience. Do as I say or God's going to get mad at you. If I hear one more, this goes on today. If I hear one more minister say, touch not mine anointed, I'm going to lose my mind. That is not what God meant. If I hear one more minister say, your place is not to criticize me in public, I'm going to lose my mind. Now, I don't believe that you need to criticize people. I don't believe that. But it's not touch thy, touch not mine anointed. That's not what that means. That's just building in fear. Men in power don't want to give power up. The church so strangled the flow of information in the medieval times it had to, listen, that's how the world avoided major upheaval for more than a thousand years. They controlled the information. Make religion mysterious and scary, and you have a formula for civic utopia. But thank God, men and women fought and died, and things are now different. Sort of. We have the information now, but sadly, we're still ignorant. Nowadays, of course, we've overcome this language barrier problem. I, I think somebody said there's something like 90 
English translations of the Bible. We've completely swung the other way now. But we're in a much worse, much more, much more evil problem. Today, the deception, the concealment, the hiding has become more subtle. They can't take your Bibles from you anymore, but they make you believe you need them to interpret it. And you know what? It seems to be fine with us. It seems like a lot of work to figure out all those these and thys. You just tell me what it says. I'll be fine with that. I'll nod my head every couple of minutes, maybe offer up a very spiritual sounding mm-hmm or the most pious amen that I can muster. After all, it's just an old dusty book. I mean, it's good. Yeah, of course. But it really looks like a lot. How much do I really need to know? And it really, I mean, can we really trust it? It's kind of like a fable, isn't it? I mean, too smart for that now. That book was written by cavemen. I mean, we're too smart now for that. That's what they tell me. That's what the church tells me. We're too smart. You're too smart for that stuff. I once met an employee of a church who was trying to convince me to let my daughter get involved in their programs. Translation, give them our money. And in that conversation, the one I had with the employee of the church, we talked about the daycare. We talked about the music program. We eventually started talking about the religious education. Seemed to have come last. I don't know why. And in the context of that, she said to me, quote, We don't take the Bible too seriously. That's what she told me. She told me her church didn't take the Bible too seriously. And she said it to me in a tone that was obviously a tone meant to comfort me, as if taking the Bible too seriously was a deal breaker for getting my child involved in their religious education. Now, obviously, she didn't know me. And if she did, she probably would not have taken that posture if she knew what I did. She knew my view of the Bible. She wouldn't have said that. And to be fair, she was not the church pastor. She was an administrative person, but that should only make you slightly less alarmed. But unfortunately, this is not an unusual thing. Most people have been lulled into an ignorance or contempt of Scripture. In medieval times, as, as I just described, scriptural naivete was actually institutionalized. It was the law. You must be ignorant of Scripture. 
In modern times, it's a matter of choice. Now, again, you may be saying, well, well, so what? What difference does Scripture really make in my life? One time after his crucifixion and before his ascension into heaven, Jesus happened upon two men on the road to Emmaus. Those two men were soon treated to the greatest Bible study in human history. I wish I could have gotten it. I will eventually. Luke 24, 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's why scripture is important. That's the difference Scripture will make in your life as a Christian. Otherwise, don't be a Christian. It's a waste of time. You cannot know Christ without knowing Scripture. And that's why I beat this drum. God laid down in His Word the story of the work of His Son, and you will never get that simply by listening to church picnic updates and basketball scores and building fund appeals. If your church doesn't take the Bible too seriously, you will never know Christ as long as you continue to go there. Well, my parents go there. Well, I grew up in that church. The pastor is my best friend. If you hate not your mother, father, brother, sister, etc., you cannot be my disciple. That's what he said. He said, if you're not willing to turn your back on everything that's planted in the earth, you'll never be able to be aware of the things that are born in heaven. That's my paraphrase. Ritual and announcements and long song services in outright foolishness is taking up your getting to know Christ time on Sundays and you and ultimately the kingdom will suffer for it. And that's why time in the chapel exists. Rant over. The nation of Israel by simple virtue of the fact that they are human, were sinners. And their sin stood in their way of being useful to God. Therefore, out of necessity, God instituted certain things, certain measures, in the form of offerings designed to to do two things. Number one, deal temporarily with this issue of sin, and number two, and more importantly, to tell a story. The greatest story ever told. That is today's topic. Now, the book of Leviticus describes at least five offerings. Some people believe that when talking about the offerings found in Scripture, you should include one additional offering found in Leviticus, and even one that's mentioned in the book of Numbers for a total of seven. 
Typically, however, any discussion on what is called the Levitical offerings centers on the five main ones. I will list them in the order that God introduces them in Scripture. They are, some. this is review for lots of you. They are the burnt, the meal, the peace, the sin, and the trespass offering. The burnt, the meal, the peace, the sin, the trespass offering. Those are the five Levitical offerings. The first three are what theologians call the dedicatory offerings. The burnt, the meal, and the peace are what theologians call the dedicatory offerings because these rituals, these offerings are performed solely for God's pleasure to make God happy. They are called dedicatory because these offerings are dedicated to God. And then the last two, the sin and the trespass offerings, are called by theologians the expiatory offerings. Now, theologians are just scientists, and like other scientists, they like to come up with these big, difficult-to-pronounce words. Well, expiatory is defined as something that's done to atone or to cover or to make up for. That's what expiatory means. Expiatory offerings make up for, atone for, cover up sin. Now, Christ, his life and work are symbolized in and foreshadowed in both the dedicatory and expiatory offerings, but, the, but today I want to concentrate on just the expiatory offerings, the ones that dealt with sin. So, right off the bat, you may be asking yourself, well, why are there two offerings related to, to sin, two distinct offerings? Remember, we just said that for the sin offerings, the expiatory, there was the sin offering and the trespass offering, and they both served to atone. They were both expiatory. They both dealt with sin. Well, why two? Well, there is some debate on this, but I believe the answer to this question is that these two offerings are meant to deal with the two facets or types or aspects of sin. Because there are the sins we know about, the things that we intentionally do, the things we are personally responsible for, our mindful actions, our selfish failures, our deliberate rebellions. Those are one type of sin. The Bible calls those trespasses. The King James calls them trespasses. Those are things we do on purpose. You remember when the Lord taught his disciples to pray. He instructed them to say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Trespasses are sins done with the full knowledge of the fact that they are sinful. We know they're wrong and yet we do them anyways. That's what the trespass offering is meant to atone for. That's why you must, the Israelites were given the trespass offering as a requirement to remove the 
effect of trespass sins. Got that? We act mindfully sinful, therefore we need atonement. That's one. That's the trespass offering. That is the trespass sin. And then there's the other aspect or type of sin covered by the expiatory offerings where we fall short of God's ideal simply by the virtue of the fact that we are the descendants of Adam. Now, this aspect of sin, of course, is as so many things are best described by the Apostle Paul. He said in the book of Romans, wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world and death by that sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. That side of sin is out of your control, so to speak. It's not really your fault. Now, it doesn't mean it's not sin. I didn't mean it is not an excuse. Sin is sin. It still has the same effect. It's unavoidable, but it has the same effect as the trespass. It separates us from God. The great J. Vernon McGee used to say that we aren't sinners. Be- everybody, by the, by the way, everyone claims to have said this. The, uh, the first time I, the oldest version of this I find from J. Vernon McGee, who says we aren't sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. We have the condition of sin on us, and because of that, we don't do things we should. We do things we shouldn't. We are born sinners, and therefore we sin. But God's mercy even has a plan for that. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done, and shall do against any of them, And then following that, following that verse, are the things that God will accept as an atonement, as covering, as expiatory for these sins of ignorance, for lack of a better term. These things are known as the sin offering, and they speak of Christ. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take This is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. We'll come back to that. Now, one of the interesting things about this sin offering, about the sin offerings, the trespass and the sin offerings, is that God actually classifies the offending party. And each class of sinner has a different requirement in what has to be offered. There was an offering, for instance, if a person was a priest, one if he was a ruler, and one if he was just a common person. There was even a separate offering if the sin was committed by the people as a whole. Now, there is a whole lot we're skipping. There's so much truth to cover 
in this diversity of offering, but we don't have time for it. But I will mention this. The interesting thing about God is he does not classify the sin. He classifies the sinner. You see, to God, he's offended by all sin. All sin, small or great, offends God. But the impact of sin is what's being dealt with. That's why God classifies sins differently according to the sinner. The one who sins makes the difference. Now, whether you like it or not, there appears to be a hierarchy in God's kingdom. That's very offensive to Americans. It's not so to Europeans. They get that. They understand it better. That there is going to be a, quote, pecking order. We don't like that as Americans. We're all equal. But that's not the way it appears to be in God's kingdom. Of course, he loves us all the same, but he does not treat us all the same. Now, if you don't believe that or you don't like that, then you're going to get a very rude awakening the moment you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, because that will be where, in the end, Jesus will actually bestow different rewards on different people. He, and these are saved saints, by the way. This is for the saved. The judgment seat of Christ is for the saved, and he will dole out rewards differently. We're not all going to get the I tried trophy. But the difference will be what you did in the body, as it says. God has different ways in which he treats his children. He also has varying sets of expectations from his children naturally. For unto whomever so much is given, of him shall be much required. For instance, I am a minister of his word. He led me into this ministry. Some people don't like the word, but I will say it. He called me to this. Now, his expectations of me are therefore different because I'm expected to be different. I'm supposed to be different than a bus driver or a pipe fitter. When I fall short, the implications of it have a different impact on the kingdom than someone who is not in my position. Now, by the way, don't get the idea that I'm somehow elevating my stature among men. The king of fleas is still a flea. However, the fact remains, what some folks do has a different effect than what others do. And that's why the sin offerings are classified or categorized according to the sinner and not the sin. Now, God never overcomplicates things. He never complicates things. He may hide things, but that which he reveals is usually quite simple. The different sin offering requirements relate simply to the value of what's offered. Let me 
illustrate once again. The common person was required according to the law of the sin offerings when they were bringing forth a sin offering. They were required to offer a female kid goat. Now, the sin offering for a ruler, on the other hand, was a male kid goat. And then for a priest, well, a priest must offer a bull. The King James calls it a bullock. It is, as you know, a male cattle. So you can see that's the spectrum of the value of the sacrifices according to the person, not the sin. A female goat is at one end of the value scale, which then continues all the way up to a male bull, representing the greatest value. Now, all of this is designed to get the child of God to realize that sin is costly. Yes, even sins you don't know anything about. Even sins not done with malice of forethought have impact, and for some, that impact has greater consequences than for others. By the way, I want to point out, in case you missed it, the value of the sin offering for the priest was the highest of all. Why do you think it's so hard for people to forgive Jimmy Swaggart or Jimmy Baker or that type? Their sin is not all that different than so many other sinners. We just feel they owe us more. A sinning priest, the representative of the people to God, had, according to Leviticus, the greatest impact and therefore the greatest cost. Ministers are held to a higher standard by God because, so ministers, listen to me. You better take your job seriously because God does. God has a higher standard for you because your failure has a greater impact on his kingdom and on his plan. You're a servant. You're not to be served. Now on to the details. What you must realize is that these details were given to Moses because God was telling a story. He was laying down what some have called a drama so that we could get an idea of how God feels about sin and what he's going to do about it. And once we understand those things through all of this sacrifice and blood and burning and so on, we will see how perfectly Christ fits all of God's provision. All of what God requires to cover our shortcomings. The offerings, all of them. Not just the sin and trespass offerings, all of them were shadows of the person and work of Christ. And that's why I want to cover this before we go to the table of the Lord. So let's go over some of the amazing details. Number one. The sacrifices offered for both the sin and trespass offering had to be, listen to me, perfect. 
the Bible says they were to be without blemish. The animal offered, listen to me, the one that was to receive the punishment of sin in the place of the sinner, because that was the point of the offering, had to be spotless, had to be perfect. Your sins are costly. Our sinning ways cannot be accounted for by just any dusty, smelly, mangy animal. That animal had to be special. Very special. That's God's way. The price of redemption is high. This is my body which is broken for you. You see, unblemished animals are rare, even today. But especially so in ancient times, and their rarity is reflected in their price. Perfect animals are precious. They're expensive. They don't come around very often. And by the way, this was even the case for the 10th ephah of fine flour. What are you talking about? God is merciful. Don't let anyone ever tell you anything differently. God is merciful and he's omniscient, meaning he knows everything. And he knows that some are too poor to offer. Those There were poor Israelites who had no access to animal, to livestock. That was very expensive. There were some who just had no access to that, yet they still had sin that had to be paid for. If the sinner was the poorest of the poor who couldn't afford even—see, today we, we look at poor people as simple victims. They're not sinners. They're just victims. They wouldn't be sinners if they had privilege. They're, they do what they do because they're poor. So we can forgive them because they're poor. That's not what God says. Poor or rich alike, we all sin. Doesn't matter. Everyone has the same access to righteousness. We all ignore the right thing, rich or poor. God knew that. Then he that sinned shall, this is for the poor people, then he that sin shall bring forth. He didn't say, since you're poor, you're exempt. Because you can't help yourself. You're poor. Society's against you. You're poor. You're, you're, you're just acting out. I love that one. You're just, you're just acting out. There's nothing wrong with you. That's not how God sees it. Oh, you're just saying that because you're privileged. You don't know my family history. You don't know where I came from. 
Then he that sinned shall bring for his offering the tenth part of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil upon it, neither shall he put any frankincense therein thereon, for it is a sin offering. A tenth ephah is a measurement, a measurement of flour. A tenth ephah of flour is a measurement, something around three quarts of our quarts. Now, but that just wasn't, you weren't just going to bring any flour. You weren't just going to go find the, any corn and grind it down or wheat and grind it down or barley and grind it down. Uh-uh. The people that brought that fine flour knew that God said there's a specific type of flour. Even though you're poor, this is going to cost you too. You're not getting off the cost hook. You have to bring fine flour. God allowed for poverty, but he still demands a costly sacrifice because sin costs. The fine flour God designated, people knew what that was. It was an expensive item. It was expensive flour by the standards of the day. In fact, the grain that made up this flour was found in fancy food something that you would serve to important guests. It was a, an expensive item. Listen to me. God had to pay a high price for your atonement. That's the point. God spared not even his only son, but delivered him up for us all. No matter who you are, your sins will not go away without a high price being paid, no matter who you are. No one is exempt. God purposely demonstrated this truth in the law of the offering so that when the time came for him to sacrifice, you would see that what he gave up was of extremely high value to him. Because that's what the cost demanded. You know, I believe that the Apostle Peter has gotten a bad rap down through the centuries. Maybe not the Catholic Church. It took me until I got out into the Protestant world before I started seeing people actually sneer at Peter. It surprised me. Really, they sneer at him. They just can't let his sin go. Now, that's a tragedy. Because I don't think there was a single member of the early church that knew more about the cost of sin than Peter. Now, I'm not going to go over what he did. You know what he did. But I want to point out that after he did what he did, the Bible said he wept bitterly. The original word has a sense of piercing to it. Can you imagine? Now, we don't shed the slightest tears over our own sins, do we? Let alone weeping bitterly. 
Strong's Dictionary says that original word figuratively means violently. He was violently weeping. And you know, I, I actually don't think Peter was weeping for himself. I think he was weeping for Jesus. Because it wasn't until Jesus turned around and looked at him that he started that violent crying. I don't think it was until that moment that Peter fully realized what his sin caused Jesus. Jesus was being taken away to his death, just like Jesus had told Peter was going to happen. Peter knew the value of Jesus. He would later call the blood of Jesus precious. And he called it precious because, first of all, he knew a little bit of the preciousness of the man whose veins that blood once flowed. He knew that man. He spent three years with the very Son of God. Oh, what, what that must have been like. We won't know until we're with them, but I can say that experience was probably precious. The man himself was, was precious, and everything about him was precious, so certainly his blood was precious. But Peter, although he may not have known this during the life of Jesus, but certainly afterward, Peter discovered that the blood of Jesus was precious because of what it did. 1 Peter 1.18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. You don't think that Peter thought there was value in silver and gold? Of course he did. That's why he put it in his letter. For as much as ye know you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. I don't think anyone except Jesus knew the cost of sin like Peter. He knew that whatever he did required nothing short of the unblemished, unspotted, precious blood of the perfect lamb. Listen, no one would be able to mistake that old fisherman for a Hebrew scholar, but this statement, the one that he made as of a lamb without blemish and spot, that statement, we know by that statement, we know he knew why God, way back in Leviticus, gave those instructions on the expiatory offerings. Peter said that Jesus was the perfect, unblemished sacrifice. In fact, his blood was precious. It had to be. Sin required the highest of price. That's why only, only the blood of Jesus will do. Nothing else can come close in value. Pick up the cup with me. 
she passed it to what it symbolizes. When we do this, we acknowledge that only the precious blood of the Lamb can reunite us with our Father. When we take this cup, we show forth His death. In other words, when we take this cup with the symbol of His precious blood, we are demonstrating two things. Number one, we need Him. Number two, He met that need. That's as simple as it gets. Our sin is costly beyond all human means of atonement and only the precious blood of the perfect lamb will do. Please take it now in the full knowledge that his blood is enough and thank him for it. Back in Leviticus, God said that the person offering the sacrifice had to lay his hands on the head of the animal. Now, that may seem like an unusual thing to require, but this is telling a story. The act of the sinner laying his hands on the animal is a symbolic outward gesture that represents the purposeful, willful transference of the sins of the offering to the being that will be used as a substitute. No one is born a Christian by default. No one is born a Christian. You have to become a Christian, and you become a Christian by committing a deliberate act just like that ancient Israelite had to intentionally, albeit symbolically, transfer his or her own guilt, his or her own condition, his or her own sins to the one who will carry the burden of those sins, that will pay the price for those sins. There can be no doubt this is a symbol, a type, a shadow of you and I, the sinner, transferring our guilt, our condition, our sin in an over-deliberate act to our heavenly substitute, to our divine stand-in. Just like when that ancient sinner laid hands on the sacrifice to show his releasing of his guilt to that animal, so too do we approach Christ deliberately and mindfully to lay our sins on him. But then the process isn't over yet. Just the laying on hands is not over yet. Actually, the price hasn't been paid. You know what the price was? Death. In every instance, regardless of what was offered, regardless of the intensity of the sin, regardless of the impact of the sinner, death resulted. The story has never changed. The message has always been the same. 
the wages of sin are death. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the very next act was God slaughtering an animal to take the skins. Death was the result of sin. Doesn't matter whether you meant to sin or not. Death is the only way to make up for it. Now, you smart biblical scholars out there may say, well, uh, well, what about that tenth of ephah? What about the fine flour? Sure, the animals die, but what about the flour? Well, the two-word English phrase, fine flour, actually translates the Hebrew word soleth. And soleth, at its root, means to strip. It comes from an Akkadian word that means, listen to me, to crush. This isn't just a basket of grain. This is crushed grain. Good grain, by the way. Crushed, destroyed, stripped, ground into very fine flour. The grain suffered, if you will, to become the flour used as a sacrifice. Think about that for a while. Christ had to be crushed. Christ had to die. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now, the amazing thing about these Levitical offerings, and believe me, we didn't even scratch the surface, but the amazing thing about the offerings is that every single bit of it speaks of Christ. I mean, he was the sin offerer. He had to stand before God as the sinner. Just like that sinning Israelite had to stand before the altar when the sacrifice was offered, Jesus had to stand there in front of God as us. He wasn't the sinner. He represented the sinner. That's the amazing part. This is the genius of God's plan. The sinless one stood in as the sinner, yet he had no sin. God could allow it because the, listen, this is amazing to me. The offerer was the sinless Jesus and God could accept the sacrifice because it was offered in his presence on behalf of the sinner and the whole price was paid. And Jesus was not only the offerer, he was the priest. That's why you don't need a priest to do this. It's just you and me. Jesus was the priest. He was the altar. He was the consuming fire. It's really incredible. But perhaps most incredible, he was the offering. He was what the law required. He had no blemish. He had no spot, just as Peter said. And Peter said it because he knew it. He knew Jesus was spotless. He knew Jesus was perfect because he knew the man personally. Peter 
personally knew the life of Jesus and he knew he was perfect and spotless. That's what this bread represents. Jesus said it was his body. It was his spotless, sin-free body. His body saw no corruption. Can you believe it? You better. You better believe it. It's your only chance. He was perfect. He was, he was without spot. That was the only thing that could be offered. He was without blemish. And what does he do with that perfect, spotless life? He broke it. What did he do with that perfect life? He broke it. He laid it on that altar as if it was as spotted and unblemished and ugly as me. Why did he do that? Well, because I had no chance otherwise. I couldn't do it because I'm not qualified. The law said the sacrifice had to be perfect. I couldn't even get in the door. But because God is not willing that any should perish, 2 Peter 3, 9, someone had to offer it. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples. He lived the perfect life and willingly gave it to us. He was our sacrifice because we needed one and we had nowhere else to go. He gave us the perfect life. Take the bread in your hand, please. See in it the symbol of the perfect life given for us. See in this symbol the sacrifice we so desperately need. See in that he provided something we couldn't. I ask you, take it now. Take it with me. And when you do, discern the enormity of what he did and the enormity of what he saved us from. Do it now and thank him for it. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in His plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.